And a warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Tuesday and a lot to get to this hour, including Rebel Roundup. More than 1,000 protesters now detained in Brazil after Sunday's January the 6th style attack. President Lula da Silva promising a prosecution solution as pressure grows in the United States, too, to extradite former President Bolsonaro. And Flight Plight, the first satellite launch in UK history, is a Virgin mission misfire. Shares of Virgin Orbit tumbling to Earth, too, on that news pre-market. Prince Harry hoping his launch today has more success. The memoir spare, of course, out officially today. And in the meantime, global stocks also launch pad laggards. Take a look at this, a cautious tone as investors assess recent gains. But Europe, well, that's still near seven-month highs as Goldman Sachs now predicts no Eurozone recession. Hopes that the U.S. Fed will reboot its rockets and downshift further on rate hikes, also giving some recent support to shares too, I think. But as you can see, a sea of red on your screen. Call it perhaps a quarter reorder. Fed members Monday saying the central bank could downshift to just a quarter point hike in the future, but they still see rates rising above 5% later this year. So no slowdown yet. Fed Chair Jerome Powell speaking this hour too at a central bank conference over in Sweden. We'll see if he says anything about that rate debate. Powell on the prowl amid reopening, refocusing. It's a mixed day, as you can see, across Asia, but fresh hopes for a China economic bounce and reinvigorated spending by Chinese consumers following the end of those zero COVID restrictions. The benchmark MSCI Asian stock index rising into new bull market territory, a 20% rise from recent lows, in other words, even as the toll of Beijing's sudden zero COVID pivot continues to be counted. The Hang Seng now up almost 8% year-to-date on those reopening hopes. And we've got plenty more on China in just a moment's time. But first, and we begin in Brazil, and pro-democracy rallies held across the nation on Monday in response to Sunday's violent attacks on key government buildings by supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro. The country's current president, Lula, strongly condemning the violence. This time, people didn't have a demanding agenda. They had nothing to claim from the government. What they want is a coup, and there won't be a coup, because they have to learn that democracy is the most complicated thing for us to do, because it requires putting up with others and living with people we don't like. But it is the only regime that allows everyone to have a chance to compete in whoever wins the right to govern. Meanwhile, Bolsonaro tweeted a photo of himself in a hospital bed in the U.S. state of Florida, saying he's receiving treatment for injuries from a 2018 knife attack. Shasta Darlington joins us from Sao Paulo, where a big pro-government rally was held. Shasta, great to have you with us. What were people there saying? Just give us a sense of how many people, too, turned up to that rally. Well, Julia, I'm standing right here on Avenue de Paulista in the heart of Sao Paulo. This is just one of the many locations across the country from Rio to Brasilia, excuse the noise, uh, where thousands of people turned out not only to show their support for the new president, Lula, but also to denounce the attacks on Brasilia, where supporters of the former president, Jair Bolsonaro, have claimed without any evidence that the elections were rigged. Uh, So they really came out here to do what they say was defending democracy itself. Take a listen to one of the the supporters who came out last night. Totally absurd. It's the worst moment in our history after the 1964 dictatorship. 
I think everyone was appalled by the images we saw in the National Congress. So I think the response is this. It was well done occupying the Paulista Avenue. The fight now is to support the government that was democratically elected, and we are not going to leave the streets. That is the message. And of course, Lula himself uh, met with the 27 governors uh, from all over Brazil at the presidential palace. They gave a show of force and support standing out in front of the palace. Uh, and he also criticized the police and the intelligence of Brasilia uh, for not only doing more to prevent these attacks, which were widely publicized on social media and even traditional media, uh, but also for apparently enabling the protesters as they neared the capital. And we all know what happened after that. Uh, they marched on Congress, uh, on the Supreme Court and on the presidential palace, smashing windows, trashing the place, ransacking, flooding, uh, destroying property, uh, all while Bolsonaro was in Florida. He left before he was supposed to hand over the presidential sash to Lula and then posted pictures of himself uh, last night on social media in a hospital saying that he was there to check up on his abdomen, which was injured in 2018 when he was stabbed during a campaign event. Uh, so we're waiting to hear more, uh, more from him when he might or might not be coming back from Brazil. In the meantime, some 1,500 people have been arrested or detained here in Brazil involved in those anti-democratic acts and who've also set up camps outside of army barracks uh, demanding a military intervention. Well, those barracks, those uh, camps have been dismantled. And now the hard work starts for Lula himself. These attacks showed that this is a sharply divided country and a lot of people have bought into conspiracy theories, uh, really a parallel to what we saw in the United States two years ago on January 6th, Julia. Mm, I was going to say, sounds familiar. Shasta Darlington, thank you for being on the story there for us. To Ukraine now, fighting is intensifying in the Donbass region as the war enters its 11th month. Ukraine says the Russians are focusing their efforts on capturing the mining town of Solidar. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says the mining town is now completely destroyed, but he vowed Ukraine would ultimately prevail. The battle for the Donbass continues, and although the occupiers have now concentrated their greatest efforts on Solodar, the result of this difficult and prolonged battle will be the liberation of our entire Donbass. And Scott McLean joins us now from Kiev. Scott, I saw comments this morning from the head of uh, Wagner Group praising the honour of the Ukrainian fighters here. I think it's important for you to begin just by explaining the strategic importance of Solidar and why it's so pivotal to both sides in this battle. Yeah, that's right, Julia. So the head of the Wagner Group, the uh, some people call it Putin's private army, said that the Ukrainians were defending it with honor. And it is a big deal for the Russians to be able to capture this town for a few reasons. First off, they have not had success in nearby Bakhmut, where uh, the head of the Wagner Group says the Ukrainians have it extremely well fortified. The other reason why Solidar is so important is that, A, it has a mine shaft there that goes into a salt mine, which is an ideal place to hide weapons, hide troops. Also, if the Ukrainians were to be able to capture Solidar, that would allow them to attack uh, Bakhmut, this other strategic part, this other strategic town along the front line from a different angle, from the north, because, of course, coming from the east, they have had no luck 
at all. If you believe, Julia, the head of the Donetsk People's Republic, the Russians are very close to actually capturing um, Solidar, though they didn't provide any evidence to actually back that up. The Ukrainians have been pretty honest about the fact that the fighting there is extremely difficult. That's how President Zelensky described it last night. He also said that there are almost no walls left standing. He also said there's almost no people left alive right now and that the landscape is littered with corpses and scarred by all of the strikes there. Even yesterday, the deputy head of the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense said that the Russians had amassed a huge number of troops uh, uh, on the front line at Solidar, a huge uh, amount of weapons and equipment, and they were launching a powerful new assault using multiple launch rocket systems and uh, using artillery systems as well. And so the Ukrainians acknowledge that things are difficult. We've just recently got a new update from the Ukrainian military within the last hour or so. They told CNN that the situation is under control in Solidar, as they describe it. They also say that it's under control at the moment in Bakhmut. But they also did not rule out the possibility of potentially withdrawing, potentially retreating from Solidar altogether. They say that the rationale for that, if it were to come to that, would be to preserve the lives of the troops on the front line so that they can live to fight another day, regroup, and then try to take back the territory if, in fact, they lose it, Julia. Scott McLean there in Kiev. Thank you for that report. OK, let's move on to China now and their efforts to remove COVID restrictions. New satellite images showing evidence of crowding at crematoriums and funeral homes across the country. Lines of vehicles can be seen waiting outside of those buildings. These images were taken over six cities between late December and early January. Mark Stewart joins us now from Hong Kong with more. Mark, great to have you with us. It's very difficult for us to get a sense of the scale now of the COVID outbreak and, of course, the sad loss of life tied to it, particularly given the change in um, classification of what is a COVID-related death in China too. Focus on these images for us. What are they telling us? What can we glean? Absolutely, Julia. These images from so high above basically serve as confirmation for what we have seen on the ground. Not to sound too grim, but our team in Beijing has seen these lines into the crematorium. They have seen a steady stream of smoke into the air. They have seen crates full of body bags. And all of this is really a stark contrast to the narrative that we have been hearing from the Chinese government of 37 COVID deaths. Many family members, even the World Health Organization, has been making statements which show otherwise, feel otherwise, show disagreement to that statistic of 37 deaths. And Julia, as you mentioned, the criteria for a COVID death in China is very specific. It needs to be a respiratory death directly caused by the virus, something that outside observers, again, including the World Health Organization, feel needs to be revised, perhaps needs to even be more truthful, Julia. Mark. Thank you so much for that report. Mark Stewart there. And the UK suffering a setback in its ambitions to launch satellites into Earth orbit on Monday in the first ever space mission to take off from British soil. Virgin Orbit was aiming to place nine satellites into orbit. The delivery vehicle was a rocket launched from a modified Boeing 747 called Cosmic Girl. Yet despite initial positive signs, it did not end well.
It appears that Launcher 1 has suffered an anomaly which will prevent us from making orbit for this mission. Uh, we are looking at the information and data that we have uh, gotten. And here's the immediate financial impact. Virgin Orbit's stock price down a whopping 21% or near in the pre-market session. Tom Foreman joins us now. Tom, we heard Christopher Ralph there, the Director of Systems Engineering and Verification for Virgin Orbit, call it an anomaly. Do we have any sense of what happened? We don't know what happened. We know when it happened. They dropped this rocket from the plane at about 38,000 feet just off the southern coast of Ireland there. It took off, and for quite some time, everything seemed fine. It burned through the first stage. It ignited the second stage. It was in space. And according to the company's statement, sometime during the first burn of that second stage, it was supposed to burn a while, coast some, and then reignite to position itself to deploy the satellites. Sometime during this first burn, they suffered this anomaly. Now, what that is, we don't know. We don't know if the rocket blew up if they lost control of the rocket, or if the rocket uh, just uh, shut itself down because something wasn't working right. But that's where it happened. We still don't know what happened. Do you think they have a good sense, though, Tom? They'll know already sort of precisely what went wrong, what the fix perhaps is, and how long it might take. Well, I think they'll have an educated guess at this Mm. point. They have a ton of data coming back from a ship like this. They'll have an educated guess, but guesses only get you so far. And in space engineering... You can't guess if you can avoid it. You need to know for sure. So I'm sure that they are just pouring over this data right now, Julia. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about it yesterday, and obviously you were telling us about your daughter's uh, sort of interest and um, and the science behind this in particular too. And I just I look at that share price reaction. That's a dramatic fall, a dramatic financial hit that the company's taking, probably dwarfing the financial cost of whatever the fix is in getting this back up there. Just in terms of sentiment, how is in, how important is it for them to? fix this situation and say, look, you know, we're going to try again. We've got this under control. I would say, uh, you mentioned my daughter, she actually worked on this system a couple of years ago, not this particular rocket, but this system. Um, I I think it is, critical is a mild word at this point. Uh, Not only does, whenever you lose a rocket like this, not only have you lost years of work, millions of dollars, the investment of the satellite people as well, but in this very crowded space sector where private space flight is incredibly competitive right now, you have exposed yourself to an economic danger here that for any given company could be existential. Remember, Virgin Orbit has only successfully launched this system five times. They had one failure, now they've had two failures five successful launches. They were talking about having as many as 20 launches a year. Right now, that seems very far away. The question is, with stocks falling like that, with so many other people competing for it out there, and with their system being such a unique system, can you get enough confidence in the market for people to stick with the company and say, we still believe this can work? Because as you and I were talking just yesterday, this idea is so novel, it does represent opportunities for Mm. countries like the UK and many others that want to be in the space launching business. We just don't know if the business will support that want. Right. you got to get it right. Tom, great to get your insights once again. Thank you so much for that. Okay, straight ahead. He was a financial sociopath, a serial financial killer. He was a top financier to Ponzi mastermind. Bernie Madoff's role in one of the greatest financial crimes in history is on display in a new docu-series. We speak to its director after the break. And 
Later, rare good news for Mother Earth. Efforts to mend the ozone layer are working. The co-chair of the Montreal Protocol that aimed to help that will join us to discuss. Welcome back to First Move. After the 2008 financial crisis, Bernie Madoff became a household name synonymous with one of the biggest financial crimes in history. Now a new four-part docuseries, Madoff, the Monster of Wall Street, on Netflix, dives into Madoff's multi-billion dollar Ponzi scheme and just how he was able to fool the world for decades. Nothing my team did stopped Madoff. Nothing the government did stopped Madoff. He blew up because the markets blew up in 2008. And Madoff's name came up recently once again in comparison to Sam Bankman-Fried, the disgraced CEO of FTX, who now faces criminal charges, including fraud and conspiracy. Well, the director of the Madoff series says while SBF wasn't running a Ponzi scheme, he does see similarities between the former king of crypto and Bernie Madoff. And I'm pleased to say joining us now is Joe Berlinger. He is the director of Madoff, the monster of Wall Street on Netflix. Joe, it is fantastic to have you on. Perfect timing. Perfect timing, I think, with this docuseries. Would have thought, you know, I'm yeah. surprised the uh, I'm surprised people have really responded well to the documentary. I thought it would be a very narrowly focused thing. And I think the blowing up of FTX has made people realize the the Madoff story is still very uh, resonant because we see some of the same. We see yeah. some of the same factors. You have investors uh, and people who are taking other people's money who should have known better had done some due diligence, both with Bernie and both with FTX. You see a charismatic leader selling a story that people are all too willing to believe. Uh, and you have, you know, the total failure of government regulation. I mean, the, the, the SEC failure on the Madoff case was, is, was and is incredible. And there is regulatory failure in the crypto space, in my opinion, as well or a complete lack of it at this stage, uh, in in the latter case, to your point. Um, Do you know what this documentary makes me realise? And it's quite fascinating, I think, going over the story once again, is how simplistic, actually, the fraud was. And I think this is a a crucial point. Hindsight, as always, is is perfect sight or, or 2020 sight. But I think this is something that you bring out and show in the documentary incredibly well and something that we do really need to understand today, that there were people saying, hey, there's something not right here and the regulators ignored it, but also that it just at the heart of it, this was a simple fraud. Oh, you know, that that's the thing. You know, Madoff has been mythologized over the years as this evil genius who single-handedly duped Wall Street. Uh, and that's such an oversimplification and a disservice. The point of the documentary is actually the fraud was pretty simplistic. Even a little old documentary filmmaker like me understands that, for example, the returns he was saying were unrealistic, didn't measure the market. Even somebody like me understands that his strategy employed an option strategy, the stri- uh, split strike conversion strategy that would have required more options than are in existence. <laughs> And the, the reason this is important is that people tend to look the other way when something is too good to be true. Now, I'm not blaming the actual victims, the mom and pop people who invested with somebody who was supposed to be watching out for the money. 
But those feeder funds, the intermediaries, the people in the business who were getting these fat fees off of Madoff for directing money to them, they should have done the due diligence and they should have known better. So to me, this is a cautionary tale and we see it happening again with FTX. It's so important that you mention this because we've had this discussion on the show as well and it does tie to today. Um, what media, what investors can do differently um, and it does tie to demanding more transparency. I mean, I've spoken to, spoken to investors since who said that they, they didn't touch Madoff because they asked for documents and they weren't given them. And if only people had been more demanding of more insight and more transparency, perhaps we could have solved it. And, and it wasn't the regulators that caught Madoff. It was the tide going out. It was the financial crisis or in, in the case of Sam Bankman-Fried, um, the, the sell-off in, in crypto assets. Joe, the, the real yeah. saviour here, bizarrely, was that the downfall in, in asset prices. Yeah, I mean that's the, that's the the scariest thing about the Madoff story, is that you know as your clip you know you played the clip it's it, you know Harry Markopoulos, a famous uh, you know right. whistleblower, went to the SEC five times in eight years with documentation. They didn't they didn't do anything about it. What you know the government bring, didn't bring them down. Ethics on Wall Street didn't bring him down. Look after certain companies wouldn't deal with Bernie like Goldman Sachs. I mean certain companies knew something smelled. Uh, you, you know, and it's it's just uh, the, the warning signs were there, uh, you know, and it's just they, the basic rules of investing say, you, sh- you know, you shouldn't take something that you don't understand or even the simple fact, you, if I buy a share of stock, I get an annual report. Even if I buy mm-hmm. one share of stock, I get an annual report and a proxy statement. When you traded with Madoff, you didn't get annual reports. That should have been a red a red flag right there, you know. Uh- you know, it's interesting. Insufficient oversight, I think, is something that you you portray perfectly in this documentary. Um, what about greed? What about basic greed? Because I think the other important part of this is Bernie Madoff had a viable business. It was enough. Yeah. But yeah, then no, came that's, the fraud. That's, oh, greed, you know, you can wrap this whole story around greed. Greed greed for Bernie. I mean, you know, he was an innovator. He helped, you know, create the NASDAQ. He helped popularize electronic trading. The fact that I can go on my Schwab account and immediately buy a share of stock at a very good price and with no commission, you know, we owe that in part uh, to Bernie. So his his legitimate market-making business should have been enough, but he really wanted to be the guy on Wall Street. Uh, and he really, you know, it wasn't enough. Um, same thing with the people, the, the, the feeder funds, the Fairfield Greenwich, the hedge funds, uh, just look the other way. Again, the mom and pop investors who were wiped out, they are blameless because they were investing in, in what was actually sold as a relatively conservative fund. It's those middlemen that Bernie, you know, that, that the small investor gave money to invest in Bernie. Those people totally looked the other way because they were getting double the fees you know the the standard fee as as you probably know uh in hedge funds is mm. this two and twenty percent of the assets and twenty percent of the gains and normally that's split between the theater fund and the person you're investing in but bernie said hey keep all of the fees i don't want the fees that triggered greed they looked the other way because they were getting double the fees that's the bottom line on the madoff story just and most people, most people were involved and had a fear of missing out. We, we often talk about FOMO um, in financial Please. markets as well. Um, the sad part of this, Joe, is that perhaps we haven't learned lessons in terms of needing more regulatory oversight and, and asking the right questions. Do you think we learn now? 
as a result of the work that you've done here, of what we've seen perhaps, and obviously nothing's proven yet with, with Sam Bankman-Fried and, and FTX, but, but could be? Yeah, I don't know. Human nature as such. I mean, we see, we see fraud on Wall Street every five to eight years, uh, massive fraud sometimes, and it all comes down to the same thing. People are too greedy you know, to really inquire if they're making money. And there is something about regulate regulation in this country. The SEC is great at mopping up the mess, but, you know, we want them to come, you know, before the mess happens and that doesn't seem to happen. Yeah. So I hope we've learned our lesson. I hope we've learned our lesson, but I'm not so sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think I agree with you on this. Um, I have to ask, are you pulling material together for the, uh, for the SBF FTX (laughs) documentary? Maybe. We'll see. You know, a lot of people are on that story. I mean, the reason I wanted to do the Madoff story is it's, you know, we can look at it in hindsight. And yeah. we and back then, you know, Bernie became the poster child for all the ills of the financial crisis. He got blamed for things that actually weren't his fault. And all these other people, you know, got off scot-free, you know, uh, from the mortgage meltdown. Um, so I thought it was important to take a look back now and really understand what happened. And it wasn't a singular genius pulling the wool over the eyes of the population. It was it was this industry, Wall Street, uh, that not everybody, of course, but the people involved with Bernie were just just did not want to look too deeply into it because they were making money, which just should be a real caution to people. If you don't understand what you're putting your money into, you should not invest. And the other thing that killed all these investors, Bernie inspired so much trust that they didn't give them 10 percent or 20 percent of their money. They gave people, you know, they gave him uh, their entire life savings. So people, mm. you know, the basic diversify. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah, it's not about just one man. It's about an entire system. And unfortunately, that system's not yeah. changed enough. Yeah. Joe, okay. great to chat to you. Thank you so much Thank for your you. time today. You. We'll see you again soon, I'm sure. <laughs> Joe Berlinger there, the director of Madoff, the monster of Wall Street, currently on Netflix. Thank you. All right, coming up on First Move, immigration, a top priority. How President Biden is planning to curb the surge at the U.S. southern border. That's next. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. stocks are up and running this Tuesday session and a softer open for the major averages as expected with tech shares pulling back after two days, in fact, of solid gains. I'd call that unchanged. So there's hope yet. Caution today, though, as both BlackRock and Fidelity warn that investors are not taking the inflation risk as seriously as they should. Morgan Stanley saying in the previous session that profit expectations are also too high. We begin getting fourth quarter earnings from the major U.S. banks on Friday of this week. Also today, the ongoing crypto winter getting even chillier. Coinbase warning it will cut some 20 percent of its staff. That's the second round of job cuts in seven months. And the CEO warning of, quote, more shoes to drop within the crypto industry itself. And more concerning news, too, from the World Bank, just releasing a downbeat look of the state of the global economy. The organization seeing global growth of just 1.7 percent this year. That's a substantial drop from its previous targets. It also sees particular challenges, as you perhaps would expect, for emerging markets. Rahel Solomon joins us now. Rahel, it was actually the line where they said anything else goes wrong and it could tip the global economy into recession for what, the second time within a decade. Just talk us through their their key findings in this report. 
perilously close to falling into recession, Julia. Mm -hmm. That part got my attention, too. So I want to compare that 1.7% global growth forecast that you just mentioned to the previous forecast we got from the World Bank about six months ago, 3%. So it's a pretty significant downgrade in a relatively short period of time. And the factors, Julia, for the downgrade are things that you and I talk about a lot on this program, right? Increased inflation, uh, higher interest rates, aggressive central bankers, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and any adverse shock to any of those things could really sort of, as we said, perilously uh, put some of these advanced economies into a recession. The picture, however, even more dire for emerging markets with the president, uh, David Malpass, saying in a statement in this report, emerging and developing countries are facing a multi-year period of growth slow growth driven by heavy debt burdens and weak investment as global capital is absorbed by advanced economies faced with extremely high government debt levels and rising interest rates. And Julia, on rising interest rates, we know that they still have higher to go as inflation remains quite elevated. And to that end, we get a key inflation report on Thursday here in the U.S., the U.S. CPI report, which will likely get quite a bit of attention from policymakers. Yeah, and it's key to understand when advanced economies are raising interest rates, it sucks money out of emerging markets because you can get a decent return in the developed economies. Why would you take the risk of investing elsewhere? And this is critical to understand Um, very quickly. um, We did, though, as a counter to this, hear from Goldman Sachs saying they believe that the eurozone will avoid recession despite earlier concerns. What can you tell us on that and why? Well, isn't that interesting, Julia? Any given day, it really depends on whether you're getting this report from the soft landing camp, as apparently Mm -hmm. Goldman Sachs now is with the Eurozone. So updating its forecast, saying that it now actually expects the euro area potentially to avoid a recession in 2023, expecting growth of 0.6% compared to its previous forecast of negative 0.1%. Some of the factors there being natural gas prices falling, China's reopening. And so, and of course, we got that report this week that unemployment remains very low in the eurozone. So you add all of these factors and you have Goldman now saying it also expects the eurozone to be able to avoid a recession. And Julia, as you know, it has also said the same about the U.S. It really just depends on which camp you're in. Yeah, yeah, it does. And what it really says is we're struggling to to guess, quite frankly, and there's so many things that could change. Um, it's tough to predict, as always. Rahel Solomon, Perilously close. great job. Exactly. <laughs> Who'd want to be predicting? OK, and we'll speak to the president of the World Bank, David Malpass, on tomorrow's show. Okay, to Mexico City now. And U.S. President Joe Biden holding a series of meetings with the leaders of Mexico and Canada. They're discussing trade, security and climate change. But of course, top of the agenda has to be migration. The U.S. is expected to roll out new measures during today's summit to try and keep migrants from crossing the southern border. And MJ Lee joins us now from Mexico City. Smiles and diplomacy on the surface between U.S. President Joe Biden and the Mexican president. But he was punchy in some of these comments. Abandon the attitude of abandonment and disdain for Latin America and the Caribbean. What measures can the U.S. provide here to solve some of those concerns? Yeah, I mean, what we are essentially seeing unfold is the Biden administration here in Mexico City uh, really continue to find ways to try to get a handle on the migrant situation at its U.S. southern border. And of course, this has been and will continue to be a huge topic of discussion uh, while the president is here for the North American Leader Summit. And this afternoon, we will see him meeting with his counterparts from Mexico and Canada. And one of the things that we expect is the administration to roll 
roll out today a virtual platform. Uh, this is being described by officials as basically a one-stop shop for uh, migrants and asylum seekers who can basically go and try to figure out, are there legal pathways uh, for me to enter a country like the U.S., uh, Mexico, or Canada? And they're also announcing uh, the building of new physical resource centers, again, where these migrants can try to go and figure out what are the options for me to legally get into some of these countries. You know, all of this, administration officials say, uh, is an effort to show that these issues need to be handled in a coordinated basis, that it can't uh, just be a solution that comes from the U.S., but because uh, this affects the entire region, that it's important for countries like the U.S., Canada, and Mexico to all work together. Uh, I will say, though, uh, at least back at home in the United States, there are some questions being raised about how effective some of these new measures can be, uh, particularly when you think about this virtual portal that is going to be uh, a launched in the next couple of months. First of all, we don't really have the full details yet because it's not been launched yet. Uh, but second, it just raises questions about how effective this portal can be since, you know, when you talk to experts, some of these asylum seekers, when they go straight to the U.S. southern border, they're doing that uh, without first properly ap applying for asylum because the situation back at home, because the situation that they're trying to escape at home uh, is so dire and because they're so desperate. Uh, so there have been some concerns about potentially turning away uh, some of these migrants at the U.S. border because they haven't sort of taken the proper steps when they're sort of doing that only because they feel like this is the only option that they have. So uh, we'll just have to see exactly what comes out of this meeting this afternoon, of this summit this afternoon. But again, just goes to show uh, how complicated this problem is. And again, back at home, this has been such a big uh, major political liability and issue for President Biden. Yeah, and underscores the point that you made that coordination and cooperation is desperately required on this either way. MJ Lee, great to have you with us. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, coming up after the break, ever wondered why we don't hear so much about the hole in the ozone layer anymore? Well, that's perhaps because it's on its way to being fixed. The man behind a rare triumph of international cooperation is up next. Heavy rains, floods, landslides, the consequences of climate change clearly once again on display in California. But there's also hope that efforts to reverse the damage we're inflicting on our planet can work. The ozone layer protects the Earth from harmful ultraviolet rays from the sun. And back in the late 1980s, we heard a lot about a worsening hole in it caused mainly by the release of chemicals called chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, which were mainly used in things like fridges, aerosols and solvents. Well, now the UN says action to save the ozone layer has been successful and it is on track for a complete recovery over the coming decades. It's all thanks to efforts made since the Montreal Protocol was agreed 35 years ago and began the phase out of CFC use all around the world. Joining us now, Dr. Paul A. Newman, who's Chief Scientist for Earth Sciences at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. He's also the Montreal Protocols Co-Chair of the Scientific Assessment Panel. Dr. Newman, welcome, and I hope I got those titles correct. Um, firstly, this is an incredibly exciting report, not just for the knowledge and the science behind it, but for, I think for the hope that it provides that we can take action to help reverse the damage to our planet. Just briefly talk us through the findings of this report. 
Well, there's a, there's a few really uh, interesting findings. Um, first of all, uh, we now see both the emissions of ozone-depleting substances and the levels of ozone-depleting substances continue to go down in our atmosphere. Um, so back in the 80s, uh, it was going up and up. Now it's topped off and it's been slowly coming down. The problem is that these chemicals, chlorofluorocarbons, have very, very long lifetimes. So it's going to come down very slowly over the coming decades. So that's, that's really positive news about the chemicals that actually lead to ozone depletion. But secondarily, when we look at the ozone layer, we now see ozone in the upper altitudes where depletion is actually um, very prominent. Now, we see things coming up now. So ozone is increasing in the southern mid-latitudes, in the tropics, and in the northern mid-latitudes. That's a very, very useful result, interesting result, positive result. Um, so ozone is increasing. Chlorofluorocarbons are decreasing in our atmosphere. So, so things are working out as, as we theoretically predicted many years ago. If you curtailed the usage and emissions of these chlorofluorocarbons, the ozone layer would recover. And that's what we're seeing now. And just to be clear for our audience, what we're saying is by 2040, based on current levels, the ozone layer will be back to the 1980s levels. It's going to take um, a bit more time over the Arctic and over Antarctic, in that case, 2066, to see the same kind of recovery. But I think the point that you made there is vitally important for all to understand, because when I saw the statistic that the use of CFCs now is down 99%, my initial response is, but why is it going to take so long for the recovery? And, and what you're saying is these gases just stick around so long that it just takes that much time. Yeah, the chlorofluorocarbon uh, 11, uh, chlorofluorocarbon 12. We used to use CFC 12 in our car air conditioners. It was very commonly used. Wow. Um, it has a lifetime over 100 years. And so the recovery is going to, to take a long time. Um, and so that's why the ozone hole will recover in around in around to, back to the 1980 level in about the year 2066 or so. Um, it's a long, long process. But but the positive thing is, of course, it didn't keep getting worse. Um, it turned around and it's on the, the, the downward trend now or upward trend for ozone. Yeah, which is which is what's so great about the science behind this, the action that was taken, and I know you were a crucial part of that too, and, and the benefits that we're now seeing. Um, Ozone-depleting gases are also pretty potent greenhouse gases too, from my understanding. Can we quantify what it would have meant in terms of heating of the Earth's surface too if we hadn't have taken well, the action that we'd had, that we did? Sure. Um, well, we always talk about um, chlorofluorocarbons as ozone-depleting substances, but as you point out, they're also powerful greenhouse gases. Um, in fact, uh, a one pound of, of or, or one kilogram of CFC-12 uh, is equivalent to thousands of pounds of CO2. So it's a very powerful greenhouse gas. So stopping the production and, and having it de the, the levels decreasing is slowing. We are avoiding um, uh, warming of the Earth's surface from these CFCs. Now, there was a second class of gases called hydrofluorocarbons, which were also powerful greenhouse gases. Now, hydrofluorocarbons, they don't deplete the ozone layer, but they were the 
replacements for the CFCs. So they were starting to be widely uh, adopted around the world um, as refrigerants and so forth. So in uh, the Montreal Protocol, added an amendment to control hydrofluorocarbons. So now we are starting to see the slowing of the growth of hydrofluorocarbons, and we expect they will peak sometime in the 2030s, and they'll also come down, again, reducing a climate effect. We will avoid about 0.3 to 0.5 degrees Celsius change, so equivalent to Fahrenheit, about 0.6 to 1 degree global warming um, by the year 2100 because we've controlled the hydrofluorocarbons in addition to the CFCs. So both of these are very positive outcomes. Yeah, but it's it's that um, unintended consequences of replacing one thing with another and creating uh, other issues. So I'm glad glad the amendment was put in place to, to try and protect against that. There was a reason why I was asking this, though, and I know for the first time in this report, and this report's done every four years, um, you were looking at, or scientists were looking at, the prospect of solar geoengineering. I'm going to read this to make sure I get it right. This is an attempt to reduce global warming through measures such as spraying aerosols into the stratosphere to reflect sunlight out of the Earth's atmosphere. Um, sounds promising. How optimistic should we be? And to your earlier point, what about unintended consequences perhaps of this? Is there and are there prospects for sure. using this in the future? Right. So, so the idea, um, you know, we all stand out in the sun in the middle of the day and you can feel the warmth of the mm. sun as it is. As we call that short wave heating. Um, if you reflected a little of, of the sunlight back to space, you reduce this incoming radiation and the Earth's surface will cool a bit. Mm. So the idea is let's put up um, a gas or gases into the stratosphere and they'll form um, little particles, little tiny particles that create a white reflection back to space. So it's almost like putting up a partial um, you know, umbrella or, or something like that. <laughs> um, it's reflecting radiation back, back to space and it cools the Earth's surface. But when you do that, of course, you're putting this stuff into the stratosphere. So it, first of all, it depends what you put up there, the kinds of right. particles you put up there, um, and how much you do it. It turns out the stratosphere is always flushing stuff back down into the lower atmosphere. So you have to continue to do inject this stuff to maintain uh, the surface cooling. So it depends on the particles, it depends on the conditions of the stratosphere, but it will warm up. It, it will heat the stratosphere and it will change ozone levels. And one of the things, uh, if we wanted to reduce the temperature at the Earth's surface, about about one degree Fahrenheit globally, um, there's a certain amount of, sulfur, of of these particles we have to get up there. That will reduce the, it will make the Antarctic ozone hole a little bit worse. It will reduce it by uh, a measure of, of, of uh, total ozone above your head, um, reduces it pretty significantly, and it delays the recovery wow. of ozone over Antarctica by quite a bit, actually. Um, so it is a fairly negative impact of doing this. On the other hand, if there's catastrophic climate change and we have to do something, um, this might be what we'll have to do. So it's, a, it, it's, it's the obligation of we scientists to figure out what's going to happen if we start adding particles to the stratosphere. And what are these negative effects that might occur? Um, it, it turns out, in fact, if you put particles up in the mid-latitudes in the northern hemisphere, you might get a little bit of increase 
of, of ozone. So you make the polar regions worse and you might make the mid-latitudes um, a little bit better. But our, our models right now are, are not, uh, you know, they, they need a lot of work. Um, we need more observations. Um, just understanding uh, what's happening in the stratosphere um, with these particles that are naturally there is already a difficult scientific problem. Um, we had a massive eruption of the Hunga Tonga volcano last January, and we're only now seeing its impact on the stratosphere. And in fact, the Hunga Tonga may make the Antarctic ozone hole much worse next year. Um, mm. So we need to understand what happens when you put things into the stratosphere. We need to understand at a very detailed level to make sure there aren't these negative effects, unforeseen negative effects. Yeah, and to your point as well, balancing what we have to tackle first, the impact of climate change and the extreme weather events that we're seeing around the world versus perhaps some potential deterioration or slowing in the recovery of the ozone layer. I tell you what, Dr. Newman, Paul, I'm very glad that you're working on this because um, you give me confidence and, and hope that, that we'll, um, we'll be able to tackle it. But it's no shortcut to um, what we indiv as individuals have to do to try and um, protect the planet better. Yeah. So, I have to there let are go. hundreds, hundreds well, of scientists working <laughs> I've run out of yeah. time. I'm terrible. I'm so naughty. I've taken too much time. So I have to say thank you. <laughs> Dr. Newman, Paul, we'll get you back. Thank Chief you very scientist much. for Earth Sciences at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Centre. Thank you, sir. We'll talk again soon. Stay with First Move. More after this, if I'm allowed. <laughs> Welcome back. Prince Harry's much-anticipated memoir, Spare, is out today worldwide in London. People lined up at bookstores to be among the first to get their hands on a copy. In the tell-all, Harry makes explosive allegations against his family and describes what led to his decision to step down from royal duties. Readers in Singapore and elsewhere are eager to hear more about the royal family's bitter feud. Currently, the memoir is ranked as a bestseller on Amazon in several countries. I think that's a successful launch. And finally... Money. He's up for grabs tonight in the U.S. Mega Millions draw. The lottery jackpot stands at $1.1 billion. You heard me, meaning that after tax, the winner walks away with more than $568 million. So if you don't see me on the TV tomorrow, you'll know what happened. Not really. I'll be here, maybe. That's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I will see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.